From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Kind of sounds like a sting for Just Eat or something, doesn't it? Uh, did somebody say Just Eat? You know, could, that would work too. They were never going to London to go to London. They were going to London to use it as a stepping stone to go to America. I heard somebody laugh on the radio. Can't be doing that sort of thing. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily. When Jamie Lee Curtis killed Ryan Tuberty. A beginner's guide to that little-known beat combo, U2. And opening up the amazing RTE archive to the world. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that, if you talk away, talk away, I will swallow. The musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show began with our host recounting how Jamie Lee Curtis accidentally killed him. You know, one of the um, people I love to meet uh, when she came in TV-wise was Jamie Lee Curtis, great actress, and I was so happy that time when she won her Oscar. And there's sometimes with a guest that comes in, you, you, you will click. It, it happens here all the time you, on the radio as well. You just, it's humans. You just meet somebody and go, wow, you're, you're a buzzer and, and I'm up for this. So let's, let's sit down and talk. It's like bumping into somebody in a lift or uh, in a coffee shop. Or so you just, you just, you just sometimes randomly get on with people and, and it happens more sometimes with some and other times you go, oh, well, this isn't clicking, but we'll get on fine. She's one of those, per- it was just warmth instantly. And uh, she's very kind. It was in March she was here talking about the Halloween movie. She'd been in before. We'd got on very well and we stayed in touch a little bit off, off her. Anyway, she sent a very nice uh, Instagram post saying, we'll miss you and uh, so so sorry you're, you're gone and this kind of thing. Uh, and there, there was confusion then because people who have no idea who I am, that is to say pretty much all of her followers, were going, oh, is he, is he okay? Like what is he? So but essentially she killed me. Uh, Jamie Lee, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis uh, kind of killed me by accident. <laughs> it was death, death by kind adventure, and so so this person got on to the comments and said, "Oh no, I'm sorry for his family's loss." <laughs> and somebody, an Irish person, uh, got involved and said, he, "He's not dead." To which the person responded, "What happened to him?" To which the Irish person said, "He just left the late late show." To which the American person said, "Copy." Have no clue who he is. Glad he's okay though. End of exchange. All, 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 all cleaned up and <laughs> tidied up in the course of a few, a few messages. Oh lordy! Mind you, it's not the first time Jamie Lee Curtis has tried to kill someone, only for that person to remain unkilled. Maybe she'll give it another go, or seven. You never know. Wait, what was that TV show called? You know, the one with the dragons and the violence and the Game of Thrones. That's the one. Isn't it finished now, though? I remember watched every episode of every season of Game of Thrones at one point because no, I remember I just did a full like vomit binge, largely because I kept finding guests in front of me here or on TV who pretty much everyone was in Game of Thrones at one stage. So I thought I better watch the thing because at least I can refer to their canon of work. And I'm glad I did. I really enjoyed it, as it turns out. And the official Game of Thrones studio tour in Northern Ireland has been nominated for Europe's leading tourist attraction in the 2023 World Travel Awards. It's in the Linen Mill Studios, where much of the filming for Game of Thrones took place. And the tour has uh, celebrated its first birthday, big hit, immersive interactive, interactive tour, brings visitors to discover the making of the series, to walk through authentic sets such as Winterfell and King's Landing, up close in person with dragons and giants and hundreds of screen-used costumes and weapons and props. 
and boasts the world's largest Game of Thrones shop with exclusive merchandise. Only available at the visitor attraction. What sort of Game of Thrones merch would you would you want in your life, owner? Swords. Okay, straight away the two lads were out with swords. Crikey. Straight out. I mean, if I asked that question 30 years ago, you go, <laughs> the force is strong in this one. <laughs> but now it's the swords. We go back. Anyway, thank you for that. Two, you know, the two lads, Jamie and Jack, just turned into two seven-year-old boys with their, I mean, there's air guitars, one thing, but air sword singing, swinging above your head. Grown men, allegedly. Grown men. Of course, hooky religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side. Am I right? Yeah, let's move on to a HR nightmare. So this guy in a German hospital was amputating somebody's toe. Yeah. And it got all a bit panicky and he turned around to the the doctor, German doctor, to find his assistant. No one there. The person on the table with the toe started to move around and, and start to shake and convulse a little bit. So the doctor turned around the nearest person he could find, happened to be a cleaner. And said, give, could you give us a hand? And just hold this guy down and actually hand me the, you know, scalpel, scalpel, and hand me the, the instruments, which he did. And the poor cleaner uh, was spotted by the cleaner's boss who saw <laughs> the, the cleaner walking around with the bloody gauze pads in his hands. So what are you doing? So I was helping the, doc- the doctor doing the, the toe. We can't be doing that. Anyway, it turns out the cleaner is, I think, staying in his job, but the doctor has been, has been fired. Surgeon, no less. Fired for inappropriate behaviour with a toe and cleaner, I think is probably the full accusation there. Staying with that part of the body, uh, stilettos are foot prisons, according to some. And uh, the suggestion here is, let, let's bring the patriarchy to heel. <laughs> Good headline. Uh, and this is referring a bit to the Cannes Film Festival and women taking back control of their footwear. There's a, there's a, there's a dress code and they're saying, yeah, look, that, that's fine. It was 2023. I don't care. So uh, you have Jennifer Lawrence said, no, she, she, she wore flip-flops under a beautiful red dress. Kate Blanchett wore, what did she do? She did, she ditched her stilettos and uh, went with something that doesn't say what she went for. Julia Roberts, Went barefoot, and yeah, so it's it's t- taking back control of their footwear. <laughs> if it works, if it's working, it's working. If only these actresses would let the cleaning staff amputate a toe or two, those high heels would be no problem at all. And staying with celebs, Dua Lipa is going to be doing the theme song for the new Barbie film. The far the Barbie film appears to be. Uh, it's, it's got, got so much attention um, and, and it's not out yet from what I can understand uh, and, but I really want to go I'm buying into the, the, the hype around it everyone seems to be having a great fun making it it's really garish and, and goofy and silly and fun which is kind of probably what we want and need anyway they've teased a little bit of the song a brief snippet of the upcoming single there's a short video showing Dua Lipa recreating one of the moments from the Barbie trailer, taking off her heels, here we go again, and blowing a kiss directly into the camera. And in the background of the footage, a preview of her new disco-influenced track plays, which includes the lyrics, Just Come Along for the Ride, which you'll hear towards the end of this small clip. Oh yeah, 
that sounds about right. It kind of sounds like a sting for Just Eat or something, doesn't it? Uh, did somebody say Just Eat? You know, could, that would work too. But uh, nevertheless, as a, in its entirety as a song, probably a different story. So there's a photo of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau that makes him look like he spent, well, too long on a booking bronco. But the truth of the matter is a little weirder than that, as Ryan has discovered. Justin Trudeau. Never met the man in my life. hes I thought he was taller than six foot one. He's six foot one. I, I, for whatever reason, he must be hanging around with a lot of small people because he always looks really tall. But he's being celebrated in South Korea for what's called manners legs. I never heard this expression before, but I'll tell you exactly what it is now. In, in South Korea, it seems, it's rude for somebody young to look down on somebody older than them. Right, really old-fashioned, I think kind of sweet manners. You meant to eyeball them or look up, but never look down. Um, that, that's one reason, apparently. The other is just courtesy. Sometimes, I do it myself sometimes in a photograph, if somebody's very short, not so much kids, but if some, an adult is, you tend, to, you tend to try and make yourself a bit smaller to, to, so that you don't, you're not embarrassing the person or making them look too short or whatever. You're just trying, trying to be a bit nicer about it. So that's what he's doing. So his leg... If you, if you take the shot from the waist up, they look like two fellas having a chat eyeballing. But when you look from waist down, his legs are spread quite far apart because he's trying to shrink himself. So they're called manners legs. That's what he's doing there. And he has become celebrated in South Korea because they thought it was so respectful that he produced his manners legs uh, at this press conference. And he's dealing with uh, the speaker, I should say, of South Korea's National Assembly is the man there. And they're saying well done to him for uh, being so uh, heartwarming is the scene, is it the word they used. And everyone had a good laugh at it. And it made Mr. Trudeau look as caring as he is tall. So good luck for him and nice thing to do. Is it a good look though? Is it really? I'm not convinced. But the people of South Korea appear to be, so what do I know? Well, I'll tell you what I know. I know that the musings on the news or newsings, if you will, from this morning's Ryan Tuberty show, have been brought to a mannerly conclusion. You're welcome. The European Commission has been trying to get Ireland to take more than 13 billion euro it says Apple owes it, but Ireland has been doing its level best not to take the money from the, checks notes, biggest company in the world, saying... Ah no, sure look at its ground. Let them hold on to it for a rainy day like. Suzanne Lynch, chief Brussels correspondent with Politico, spoke to Claire Byrne this morning about the case, which is back before the courts today. We're, we're going back 10 years now and there was a, a very high profile Senate uh, committee hearing. Tim Cook, the Apple boss who had taken over uh, following the death of Steve Jobs. He was probed by US senators about Apple's tax arrangements. And that hearing was pretty explosive at the time. Um, we heard uh, Cook being accused of tax gimmicks of Ireland being a tax haven. And then that really put the emphasis on uh, companies arrangements, US companies uh, in Ireland. Um, and then uh, the European Commission began to sit up and take notice. It started its investigation into Apple's uh, tax arrangements in Ireland. And then in 2016, in a really landmark ruling for EU uh, competition policy, it found uh, that uh, these two arrangements that Ireland had entered into in Apple, with Apple back in 1991 and 2007 had kind of artificially 
lower the tax paid by Apple uh, in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And Apple was not happy with that, Suzanne, but the Irish state also believed that that was problematic. It did. And Ireland from the very beginning um, argued that this was unfair, uh, that it was unjust. And um, Apple took a case. And then what happened to the European Commission and uh, the, the, the figure behind this was Margaret Vestager, the competition commissioner who is still here in Brussels. Um, the Apple Apple won its appeal of that case. And that was a huge blow uh, back in uh, 2020. That was a huge blow for the European Commission. It was a huge personal uh, blow for Margaret Vestager, who had, you know, uh, brought this new case because state aid rules and competition policy traditionally in the EU doesn't really deal with tax issues. But this was the European Commission saying, hang on, we're using state aid rules to um, to probe tax arrangements in individual EU countries. Now, we know in Ireland that tax policy is the competence of a member state. The EU can't set a country's tax policy. But uh, cynics would say that the EU was using their state aid rules, their competition policy, to get at uh, Ireland's uh, tax mm-hmm. uh, system. So when uh, the Commission got wrapped in the knuckles very, very publicly in 2020 and, and basically lost, uh, you know, the, the court saw Apple and Ireland's point of view, the Commission then said... It would appeal this. And this is what's happening today. The European Commission is going into that court and saying that that appeal is wrong and it's back arguing its case again. Margaret Vestager came out very strongly when Apple won the appeal, didn't she? And she said that the court had made a number of errors of law. Is that what this latest appeal is based on? Yes, she did. She was very strong in her statement that time, saying that the Commission would go back to the court on this issue. And she said that making sure that all companies, big and small, pay their fair share of tax is a top priority for the European Commission. And that if member states give certain multinational companies tax advantages that are not available to their rivals, that this harms fair competition in the European Union and is in breach of state aid rules. So that is what their argument is. They believe in the European Commission that they have the right uh, to look at these tax arrangements and uh, they made a judgment uh, that these tax arrangements were unfair, they were breaching EU state aid rules, the court uh, upheld the appeal and now they're back in in court today. So it's, it's very, very significant for the EU uh, in terms of the big picture, you know, how far the EU can go in terms of uh, using its state aid tools to, to change tax policy. And, you know, some people would say the European Commission, particularly over the last few years, have become more and more powerful, maybe too powerful for some countries in certain areas. So it's a really kind of big watershed case that a lot of people are watching here in Brussels and Luxembourg. There's a lot at stake. And how long is it going to take? And then when can we expect a decision? Well, it's going to take uh, some time, um, probably not until uh, next year will we get a, a final outcome on this. Um, now, the the uh, arguments have started already this morning in the courts and we have heard um, counsel for the, for the company accusing the commission of getting things wrong and saying that the commission has tried to confuse things uh, and challenge findings of fact by the court. Now, we, we have to wait and see what the commission is going to say in response to that. Um, but it is worth keeping in mind as well that we're only a year out from the European elections. They happen next year. And then there will be a whole reshuffle within the European Commission. So, you know, Commissioner Vestager, who's in charge of this portfolio, um, you know, it's, it's a huge issue for her uh, professionally as well. This is something that she's put at the heart of her mandate. Um, she believes that uh, the Commission should get, you know, should have a role in policing the use of uh, unfair tax 
best practices as she sees it by particularly multinationals. And that's one of her key arguments that why should, you know, your your regular businesses pay X amount of tax and should there be arrangements for, for bigger multinationals that are different than that? Okay, so, so, you know, she states a lot, a lot on that and she has a year now left in her mandate. So there's a, a lot at stake in terms of policy, but the amount of money here is it's eye-watering. We know the headline figure is 13.1 billion. There's interest now piled on top of that over the last 10 years or so, uh, bringing it up closer to over four, 14 billion. Where is that money? What, what is it doing? Yes, that's in this escrow account. Uh, but you're right, it's actually lost some value because of the investment uh, climate in, in the last year or so. And actually, a portion of it uh, was claimed as tax revenue by another EU country, we we're not sure when, back in which country, back in 2021. Um, and then you had this kind of more poor performance by the fund uh, because of, of, of the interest rate uh, situation. So uh, it's been sitting there, um, but Ireland, as we know, has said it doesn't want uh, this money effectively. It's a matter of principle. Uh, Ireland obviously still relies very, very heavily on big tech companies for its tax revenue. Uh, and that's the reality. So uh, because of this, it's been very, very closely watched here. Uh, now, when the original judgment happened, I was covering it here myself at the time, and there was you know, widespread, people were aghast that Ireland was not taking this, this money. And that was just at a time, you have to remember, when it wasn't too long since Ireland was emerging from uh, the IMF EU bailout. Ireland had been in the news uh, for, for so long because of its uh, financial crisis. And here, just a couple of years later, it was uh, being given a, a tax bonanza, as many people saw it. Um, but no, the Irish government uh, instead decided to fight this case and, and was vindicated with that uh, appeal that it won, that, that Apple won back in 2020. Now it remains to be seen if, if the Commission's counter-appeal uh, will pass muster with the court. But as you say there, it will be a while before we get a final outcome on that. The €13 billion Euro Ireland doesn't want back before the courts today. Suzanne Lynch, Chief Brussels Correspondent with Politico, was talking to Claire Byrne this morning. Ray Darcy was very excited about the RTE archives finally being made available to the public this afternoon. RTE have now made available to the public through their archives recordings which date back to the 1930s. Um, they were all recorded on acetate. Now acetate is sort of a plastic thing. It's, it's like a big LP, big heavy LP and they recorded directly onto those uh, and they've sent them off somewhere, or maybe they've done it here, and they've digitised them all, and now they're available through the RTE archives, and there are some gems there. We've only had a chance to go through them briefly uh, and find a few gems for you, uh, but they're available to you to explore. Uh, and uh, if you spot any gems in there, do let us know, and then we can play them for our listeners. Uh, but among the Irish and international figures featured in the recordings is the nationalist and political activist Maud Gonn. And what you're about to hear is a clip that was recorded in 1947 where Maud Gonne recalls witnessing evictions in her youth and taking part in the land war. Um, so this is Maud Gonne from 1947. I only discovered it when accidentally I saw some evictions. And then I didn't want to go to balls and parties anymore for I would have had to dance and eat with the evictors. In Dublin, one saw little of the war, and being adventurous, I got on my horse, the easiest way of travelling in those days, and went out to view battlefields. 
the places where evictions were being carried out. Lovely way of talking. Sort of a sing-songy nearly way of talking. I'm all gone from 1947. Uh, and, and some of the gems we picked out for you from 9th of June 1939, uh, which was months before the beginning of the Second World War. Um, uh, so it's a radio airing, which was called then a news programme. It begins with the weather forecast, followed by the chief news items and a further report on the top item. And the top item is a report on British relations with Germany. So this is from June 1939 and the newsreader is a Miss Plunkett. British relations with Germany. The really dangerous element in the situation, said Lord Halifax, was that the German people as a whole might drift to the conclusion that Britain had abandoned her desire to reach an understanding with Germany. He referred to the recent statement of Signor Mussolini that there was no question that could justify a war. Oh, and Sir Halifax was the uh, the Foreign Secretary, the British Foreign Secretary, and of course, as we know, the relations between uh, Germany and England and the rest of the world deteriorated. Uh, Germany invaded Poland and uh, uh, Great Britain and the Allies declared war on Germany. And that was the beginning of the Second World War. Uh, but of course it ended. And here is the report on the day of the ending of World War Two. Reports that the unconditional surrender of the German forces to Britain, America and Russia was signed early this morning have been followed by the London announcement that Mr Churchill is to broadcast tomorrow afternoon under an arrangement between the three great powers. The German foreign minister broadcasting from Flensburg this afternoon is said that unconditional surrender had been ordered by Admiral Dönitz. And that's uh, announced by Patrick Holland at 10.10 on May the 7th, 1945. And then there's there's more sort of everyday stuff, more ordinary stuff. Uh, there was a programme that was broadcast from Cork, which was called A Woman's World. Radio Aram, A Woman's World, a weekly journal presented in the Cork studios by Sheila Nivrien. Good evening. Two years ago in this journal, we had a series of talks from Patricia Yeomans giving her impressions of life among the people of Lapland. Well, Miss Yeomans has been journeying once again, this time to Algeria. I've always had a love for the lost places of the world and the people who live in them. I mean, the really lonely... That was from 1964, so that provided a window into a world that most people listening will never get an opportunity to witness or experience. Uh, and then there were programmes for young people as well. Junior Journal. See, alliteration, always there when you're talking about young people's programming. Our story this week is by an Irish author and to tell you all about it, here is Padre Gomadine. One of the most exciting adventure stories that we have is The Fort of Gold by Eilish Dillon. Like many exciting stories, it begins very quietly. Lying on top of the thick outer wall at Dunanor, John O'Connell was the first to catch sight of the steamer from Galway. Already we feel the approaching adventure. There you go. Story time, I suppose. And Neil upstairs was wondering when... When was the first laughter heard on RT radio? <laughs> yeah, that, that was probably a momentous occasion. There was probably... Letters and phone calls of complaint. I heard somebody laugh on the radio. Can't be doing that sort of thing. There's some beautiful recordings, like this one, the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem. 
singing O Roche de Vahawalya, which was recorded at Carnegie Hall uh, in New York. We think in 1963, it was broadcast in 1964. Have a listen. <laughs> Is to deal Talishna Gaula. All together, here we go. Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem singing O Roche de Vahawalia in New York City around 1964 from the RTE archives as played out on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show. Author Catherine O'Donnell joined Ryan Tuberty in studio this morning to talk about her new book Slant, among other things. The novel has a couple of locations because it spans 40 years Um, and it opens in 2015 in Cork Um, and there's this middle-aged woman, kind of older than me, and she's doing something really weird. Um, She's obsessively canvassing for a yes vote in the marriage equality referendum Um, and she suffers burnout. So all of this happens in the first chapter Um, and... At the end of the first chapter, her friend says to her, listen, you need to go back. You really need to go back to Boston, where you were an illegal immigrant uh, back in the 80s, and you need to pick up the threads there uh, and you need to sort yourself out. And so what happens next is that the novel not only moves back to Boston, but moves back in time. And so it's the early 80s and there's this young Cork lesbian who's an illegal worker in, in Boston. Uh, and that's the start, really, of the main story. And so it begins, um, so it kind begins. of echoing real life, not necessarily your own, although elements of it, but but rec- echoing certainly um, life in the gay community, in the, as it was called once upon a time in the yeah, 80s. That's and, still a good word, and yeah. Beyond. It's funny, well, let's talk about that for a moment, because the, yeah. la- the language is, is oh, yeah. thorny. Yeah, well, listen, I'm not on top of it myself, to be really <laughs> honest. Um, and my students are very kind. So they give me lots of tutorials. Yeah, I okay. constantly get things wrong. But it's wonderful. It's wonderful that there's, you know, a new wheel being invented and new languages and new vocab. It's very exciting. Well, tell us about your story and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, and then we'll, we'll, we'll uh, spin the other plate with the, with, the, with the book in the background and come back and forth with that. Yeah. You're, you're from Cork originally. Yes, I am originally. Whereabouts? Yeah. Well, I spent my first eight years in Holbolan, um, an island off Cove. Then uh, the family moved to Carrigaline, 
where your wonderful researcher, Susan, Susan O'Loughlin, the great, yes. yes. Um, so everybody in Carrigaline, that's Cahill and Eileen's daughter. So she's done very well. <laughs> she has, she has. And she um, suffers a lot for her craft. <laughs> she's great. So she's made this very easy. So um, from there, I went to school in town, as mm-hmm. we'd say, um, in uh, St. Angela's and then on to UCC. And I actually ended up getting a job here in RT for a while. You briefly worked in, I think it was Airtel. That's right. Of, of yeah. all the things. I know. Uh, yeah, okay. When computers were new. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and from there? <clears throat> and from there I did kind of re- the ridiculous thing of giving up a lovely job in the wonderful RTE where I was very happy. Mm-hmm. But I got a scholarship, an offer of a scholarship to go to Boston College on a Fulbright. And, you know, I was young and it seemed... Like academia was probably going to suit me better than journalism. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't great at journalism, to be really honest. Um, and the slower pace of academia really suited me. So I settled in Lovely. and yeah, managed eventually to get a job in UCD, um, where I've been very happy since the 90s. Are, are you the associate professor for the history of ideas? Is that what the professor. Or, uh, professor, professor. Yeah, a real professor. So uh, okay, I got let's promoted get rid recently. of that associate thing. And, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And, and congratulations on your promotion. I'm delighted still. Uh, but yeah. what a lovely notion, even uh, as a as a job title, history of ideas. I know it's the best, isn't so it? So you're in the philosophy. <clears throat> I'm in the school of philosophy. School, yeah. yeah. And I'm in, I'm in the history of philosophy, really. So history of ideas. Um, and the, the, the kind of way I approach philosophy is to look at what passes as common sense now and to trace back all of the ways in which things like democracy were understood differently at different times. Things like gender had very, very different meanings, even just 200 years ago. So I try and train the students into, I suppose, a kind of a genealogical thinking. So everything that passes as common sense now actually is only our norm because of various things that happened along the way. So it's fun to train them to be able to trace back to see where these ideas originated and how they got kind of shifted and pushed around and have become solidified today. And, And in doing that... I'm trying to train them also to think critically around how we can unravel and make more space in some of these concepts we have. Okay, what a, what a fascinating day day job you have. Yeah, I keep saying it's better than a real job. Yeah. Your, your 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 novel slant is uh, it comes from a, an Emily Dickinson quote, right? Do, yeah. Would you give us the line in its context? Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And talk to me about that. Well. I have a hobby of writing short stories. So I've done that since I was a girl uh, and I just give them as gifts to friends. So, uh, you know, I, I always like to say I'm the definition of the Irish gentleman who writes poetry but never publishes. Yeah. So what happened when I was in, um, on research leave in Oxford in 2016 was I was quite burned out because I'd been working very hard for a, a long number of years with, on the Magdalen, Justice for Magdalen issue. So it was quite wrecked. Um, And what happens with burnout is your mind keeps racing while your body is exhausted. Um, And so my usual little hobby of writing short stories um, wasn't working out because I couldn't really finish them. So I had a a short story that I was trying to write for a friend of mine who'd campaigned a lot. I didn't campaign really on the marriage equality referendum and she was suffering burnout. So I was trying to write that short story. And then I saw I, I ended up being asked to teach in the master's program there in philosophy And I had this lovely kind of, I suppose, witnessing of two young students falling in love Mm. over the seminar table. Um, 
And then I was really, really worried because even though it was January, February of 2016, I, I knew that the Brexit referendum was going to pass. And I was worried that in Ireland we'd we'd start to start to hate um, immigrants. Um, so I was trying to remo- write another short story around, well, we have this whole history of illegal workers who've, you know, tens of thousands of them in the 80s and 90s. You're talking about us over yeah, the, us. in America. Yeah. Can, can I go back two steps? Sure. The, the couple you witnessed falling in love. Yeah. How did you know they were falling in love? Well, I'm an older middle-aged lady now, <laughs> so it's really obvious to see. Um, you could just... So we were two hours together in this very beautiful room, um, uh, all discussing feminist philosophy. And it was just the delight they took in. It's a coup de foudre, as the, you know, only the French can put it. <laughs> That's kind of, right. well, that kind of bolt of lightning. Mm. And they just saw each other. Um, it felt very tender that, you know, it felt very sweet, very young. Um, and I just set myself the challenge to see, could I write that? Can You know, because it's a very hard thing to capture in yeah. words. I can't even properly convey it to no, you No, but you're, you're described like you're, you're, you're watching a, a movie. Yeah. And yeah. you saw the scene in a movie. Yeah, And exactly. you want to translate that weirdly, the script, uh, it's the other way around. You've yes. seen the movie, now you're writing the script. <laughs> yeah, well, isn't that what writing really is? Yeah, well, it, it yeah. really is. It's, yeah. I wouldn't know, but I, I, I gather that. It's a lot yeah. about observation. Yeah, and this book is, you know, no, it isn't my story, but, but it's, it's stories that I've witnessed or I've heard. That's professor and author Catherine O'Donnell talking to Ryan Turberty this morning about her debut novel, Slant, which is published by New Island Books. Salt is a mainstay of processed food and according to a new survey undertaken in the UK, many meals such as pizza can contain our entire recommended intake of salt in one meal. Louise Reynolds, dietitian with the Irish Nutrition and Dietetic Institute, joined Claire Byrne this morning to talk about whether or not we should be worried about the amount of salt in our diets. Salt, big watchword in processed food, isn't it? Yes, it is. It definitely is. And this survey, I think, you know, it's probably quite similar here because a lot of the brands that they would have looked at are also on sale here in Ireland. And, you know, I'm not really, we're not just demonising pizza. It is all of the processed foods that we regularly eat and we maybe don't think about the salt content. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, 75% of the salt we get in our diet every day comes from hidden within foods, so within biscuits, breads, pizzas, um, you know, cured meats, things like that, which we don't always necessarily think of as being salty. So it's definitely worth, you know, having a think about it because we know we need to limit the salt in our diet and that's to reduce our risk of of having a high blood pressure, which in turn is a risk for heart disease. So it's definitely a a good message to kind Mm -hmm. of focus on, I think. And I I know that anybody who's listening at home who maybe has a baby and they're weaning foods, they're really aware of do not add salt. That's kind of a really key message when you're weaning a baby. Um, You never add salt to a baby's food. And you know, we know that's because the baby's kidneys are so small and immature and can't cope with too much salt in the food. And then as children get older, the amount of salt that's kind of recommended goes up a little bit, you know, almost with each year. And then the guideline for adults is six grams, no more than six grams of salt a day. And that's about equivalent to a teaspoon of table salt. But of course, it's it's hidden in so many foods. It's very difficult to calculate. To keep an eye on it. That's six so grams. So think you need about to be just the, aware of it. Think about the pizza that we mentioned at the beginning. Yes. Twenty one point four grams of salt, of wasn't salt. it? Yeah, and I would imagine pizza. that pizza probably had a lot of 
um, maybe pepperoni, salami, cured meats on top as well. Then there is um, salt in the dough. So there would be salt in pizza dough. And um, then, of course, whatever type of, of tomato sauce and then cheese contains salt as well. So there are lots of different toppings there. So, you know, you could say, let's make our own pizza at home. Now, not everybody is making their own dough or has their own pizza oven. That's, you know, a, a really extreme. You can control every different element. However, you can buy pizza bases. And I actually had a look at those and a full pizza base that you buy would have two grams of salt in it. And the recommendation would be that you would eat half that pizza. You would share it with somebody. Yeah. So that's one gram of salt in the base. And then if you just put on a kind of tomato, like a passata on top, again, have a look. Most of them, you know, will have very low levels of salt. Some of them won't have any salt at all added, depending. So you can have a little look at that. Then if you just put vegetables on top of that, that would be a very, very low salt pizza. And then your cheese and go for a lower. You can now buy lower salt cheeses as well. Um, if you think of something like feta cheese, you know how salty yes. like it's a lovely taste. Yeah. Um, but it's really, really salty. So um, there'll be different types. And again, if you look at the labels, so you need to become a little bit savvy about labels if you want to keep an eye okay. on the amount of salt. Is that why you brought me a label I here did. this morning? I did. So I, I know, so I I know we're not on the television, <laughs> so it's not really great to have labels here. But Claire well, we and have I have cameras. a label. People can, people can see if yeah. they're watching uh, and on the app. So on the back of every food label, any processed food, there will be a label on the back. Now, you'll definitely have to put your glasses on if you need glasses because it's very small print usually and it will contain the amount of calories and fat and protein now and um, you can see on this particular pizza now I think I have two different ones here and these are pizzas that I had at home that my children had the other evening they had pizza I wasn't cooking dinner they had pizza garlic bread and I just did a big bowl of salad with it so this was divided between a few of them so when you add it all up and then you divide about how many people are eating it so it kind of reduces down you know mm -hmm. if you're sharing a pizza but um, Should we look though at the per half a pizza is that yes, a good because guide? because per 100 grams doesn't really mean a lot to people because then you have to see what's the weight of the full pizza and divide it by the number of people. But if you just, here it says per half a pizza. So they're recommending for this pizza, which is a kind of a standard size you'd see in the supermarket, it says on the front serves two people. So for half a pizza here is 2.6 grams of salt. Mine's 2.1. I'm doing 2 a little 1. bit better. Yeah, okay. So I didn't, this one, I'm not sure what else was on the on your one there. This one has a basil, a basil chicken pizza. Um, so Mine again, was um, chicken. Yeah, chicken as well. Yeah. So, so, so that's is that not bad then? Two well, point one, or it's definitely a lot lower than the, the the one that topped the the kind of labels in the study that they carried out last week. So it's certainly a lot less. But again, that's just one piece of the meal in one part of the day. In fact, these pizzas could often be a snack. You know, teenagers might just have this even be after school, before they're having dinner. So you have to add up in the whole day. So six grams in the day is actually not that much. Um, and then we know that in Ireland we're eating more closer to 10 grams a day. So the ways in which we can reduce it. So if we forget about the pizzas for a moment, but that is certainly a highlight is the processed food. You need to choose wisely. And remember, these foods are should not be everyday foods. And um, if you're cooking yourself at home, you've much more control over the amount of sodium and or salt. Now, the problem with salt is the sodium in it. So salt is sodium chloride. That's actually what the chemical structure is. So the sodium in it and the chloride, it's the sodium that causes the problem. So if you think of things like bread soda, it's sodium bicarbonate. So there's also sodium in there. It's the sodium that causes the problem. Even one of your researchers was saying to me on the way in about um, fizzy waters and they have can often have sodium bicarbonate in there as well. So that's sometimes so, uh, fizzy waters can even taste salty. So there are lots of places where it's creeping in. So mm -hmm. I would suggest that you don't add salt, you know, when you're cooking your vegetables, cooking pasta, 
keep the salt cellar away. Um, also, don't put the salt cellar on the table because you tend to put the salt on before you've even tasted your meal. Yeah, it, you know, I love a bit of salt. I know. I love and a it, bit of salt. Yeah, and it is a taste that we, we can, but we can change our taste buds. In oh. fact, taste buds can, yeah. you know, I, I know. I hear what you're saying when it comes yeah. to weaning and we all did that, no yeah. salt, and then it creeps in and it, it creeps, creeps in, in and yeah. it creeps in. But there's a reason why the processed food manufacturers are putting a lot of salt in. Yeah. Tastes good, doesn't ta- it? It, it, it? It doesn't even taste salty, but it's obviously it's doing just, something yes, in our taste buds. Because we do have, that's it, we have the kind of taste, the sweet and sour and salty. They're all tastes that are, our taste buds kind of come alive when they get those salty flavours. But the reason that we need to keep an eye on sodium is sodium in our diet does kind of bring more water into our bloodstream. So that increases your blood pressure. So if you can imagine um, a hose, a garden hose with lots of water flowing through it and, you know, the pressure can kind of build up and that's putting pressure on your heart. If you have, you know, often people would have swollen ankles or um, would feel fluid retention. That's all excess fluid that sodium can cause that. Not always, but it can be the cause of that. Mm -hmm. So that's why we do need to keep an eye on the amount of salt in our diet. It's one of the things that we know is linked with, with heart disease and stroke. So you do need to keep an eye on it. Louise Reynolds, dietitian with the Irish Nutrition and Dietetic Institute, telling Claire Byrne this morning why we should keep an eye on our salt intake. Angelina spoke to Colm O'Mungon on this afternoon's Live Line about her 30-year-old autistic son, Edward. I'm a, a single parent and I live alone with my um, autistic son and Edward is 30 years of age. And um, um, I've, like my concerns are it's just uh, the lack of funding uh, and supports made available, you know, from the HSC and Department of Health, health and like like I'm a parent uh, who's in fear of my son's future and what could happen to him in my passing. You contacted us and you said that you fear dying on on a daily basis. Yes, um, you know, um, I'm just yes because uh, I worry. Edward is autistic. Um, what he's age is he? Constantly He's 30. He would say, Mum, will you always be there for me? Like, that's a promise I can't keep, you know, and he wants to know what his future is, you know, and it's sort of trying to get um, uh, support for my son. It's very hard. And, you know, I can get, uh, you know, frustrated with the lack of uh, um, responses from the HSE. You know, I I feel alone and isolated and I struggle to access supports for my son, you know, and I do feel unheard by the system. And what do you say when when Edward does ask you, Mammy, will you always be there for me? What answer do you give him? I joke. I say to Edward, I you know, Mammy loves you. I try to, you know, I can't make a promise I don't keep, but I say to him, Edward, Mammy will always keep you safe. And that's why I'm trying hard, like, uh, to get Edward the supports and sort of build a foundation, like a pathway that he knows that when I pass, and I will pass, that... Um, Uh, He's got a home from home and that's what I'm battling with over the years to try to achieve for him. What are his needs in terms of your need for him to to have a home for home after your time, which 
I mean, you're you're not an old woman at the moment. Uh, you're you're you're, no. you're of a working age, but clearly your concerns are, are coming in this early because of the level of need that Edward has. So, what are his needs? Well, he he would need supported living. Edward is um, very concerned. He's anxious. He can have high stress levels, you know, and it does affect both our health badly because I'm trying to cope with his stress and anxiety. He is alone with me and he, you know, his thing is he wants friends you know, to be in, I I know what he needs. He needs to be with, he needs to be able to have a life, you know, and learn to develop life skills and learn to cope in my passing. And what he needs is a slow introduction or a pathway, which is what I'm seeking for Edward. That um, Just explain that to, 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 explain that to somebody who mightn't understand if, if you were to die suddenly and if Edward were to be put into a situation that was unfamiliar to him suddenly, what impact would that have on Edward? Well, it would be detrimental because what is, if, if I was to pass in the morning, my fear is what I've been told is that Edward could end up on an A&E in a hospital to be, and he could be, he could be put anywhere. Now, my son is autistic and he needs to know, and there's a fear of the unknown. And what he would need is a slow release. What I would like for him is to have um, residential between home and between um, uh, supported living to introduce him gradually, which is crucial. I mean, it would be devastating to my son in my passing to be pulled somewhere that he didn't know. He knows his community, his day service is very kind and this is what he needs. It's trying to get that pathway, as I said to you, like, you know, I'm so afraid to die without a resolution and that's the way I feel at the moment, you know, like my dreams would be for better communication, you know, a a commitment for planning for for resolutions rather than being told no funding, end of story. You know, to create a pathway for the voice of parents and people left on trying to get on waiting lists. You know, funding for disability supports that's meaningful and has an impact in addressing the volume of needs on demand. And it's just not happening. Well, we we, we have seen information to, to the extent that it, it says that in 2022, there are 500 applicants for residential care in your area. In 2022, there was €600,000 received to fund four planned residential placements. But the people who are availing yes. of them, the priority people, are parents who are in their 90s who are now caring for ageing dependent offspring. That's very, very true, Colm. You know, there's 500, there's 499, including my son. And, you know, it's horrific. And I'd love these people to come forward. You know, um, as I said to you again, I'm very alone and isolated. Those people are out there in my catchment area alone. And it's just very frustrating, frustrating and saddening to see what's happening, you know, to these young, vulnerable adults. It really is. And even to the ageing parents, it's sad. And, you know, I, my, a parent myself that is of younger years than those parents, I'm finding it increasingly 
you know, difficult sometimes to deal with the demands that I can, I know he needs and I can't offer to him. Like, 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 like physically, what demands are you talking about? He needs reassurance. He needs physically, like um, I can give you an example. I have sort of... Um, uh, Take your time. I could never go out. Edward is my life. I love Edward, but I can't. If I went outside the door, he's so attached to me, which is really a very hard thing. He can just get very upset and get very agitated and vent and that. Um, I hurt my back. Um, he's afraid I'm going to die. Um, he, he always wants to be kept busy. Another fear that I try my best, like I work, I, I try my best what I can do, but um, it's always on to the next thing. He He's an adorable big man but he's very big and I'm very very small and I do try my best but I can't fulfill what he looks and what he needs and he would say to me mammy I want a house with friends I'm lonely and how do I deal with that you know I'm trying my best to get him what he needs and uh, I'd love to see him develop life skills coping skills in my passing you know that he could have that's single mum Angelina talking heartbreakingly about her 30-year-old autistic son Edward with Como Mungon on this afternoon's Live Line. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, formed in Dublin in 1976, popular beat combo U2 have had well, a little bit of success over the years. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, the band were the subject of the programme's Beginner's Guide to series, with Dave Fanning bringing us up to speed and reminding us that he was there from day one. I mean, the funny thing about it is, is that nobody ever thought about a global band or any big band or anything. I certainly didn't see that at all. Like, they're playing the National Stadium. Who knows? Whoa, that's big. But you're supposed to say, I saw it from the moment I met them. No, I didn't actually at all. I mean, like, I really liked them very much. I liked the music and everything else. But I mean, I never thought further than the four walls of Ireland, really. And how, how did you come across them or what happened? How did it all start? Well, I was working in Pirate Radio and they were starting at the exact same time. And they were probably the band who released, I could say, like they were the band I played most of an Irish band on pirate radio over two years but not because I thought they were absolutely brilliant but because they had more demo tapes than anybody else so I had to play this new stuff so all they the just time. kept making them and sending them into you yes, is that I'm, it? I know but I mean like like I did think they were very good they were very different around that time like the undertones of their first album the Boomtown Rats of their first album I was ten times more interested in those two things but like you know you two were one of the better bands around of the demo tape bands no mm-hmm, question about mm-hmm. you did see something in them though it's not just because well, they, no, they kept sending people, tapes which is probably cheating really mm-hmm. you know like, like I tell you, it's funny, I did see something in them, but it took me a little bit of time as well. I mean, I remember their first gig in London. I like, I mean, people think, oh, so you went to their first gig in London, like when they were only a demo tape. Well, I happened to be there. I wasn't there for you to. I'd love to say, yes, I went over because I knew what was happening. And they were playing in a place called the Nashville, the Nashville Rooms. Was it the Nashville Rooms? Yeah. And like, it was bizarre because they were third on the bill. And like the top of the bill was a band called Secret Affair because it was a mod revival at the time, mm-hmm. which the papers, the music papers will say it lasted for a year. It lasted about 10 minutes. And there was another band in between called Down to Zero or something. So the first band on was U2. Literally, there were 10 people in the place. And the really weird thing, you won't believe this, the sound man had a dog. So it was like one man and his dog. And I walked in, and it was one of the first times I went, wow, I've seen them 15, 20 times. 
they really have something going here now. And this is still well before anything. So yeah, on that level. Yeah. So they had nailed the live performance even at that stage. It wasn't even that. It was the sounds coming out of the okay. edges of guitar. And like, I mean, it was, it was um, you know, guitar, bass, drums, vocals. It was a standard rock and roll lineup. Mm-hmm. I mean, like they, I was the DJ in McGonagall's. They played there about 20 times. That's on South Anne Street in Dublin, maybe more. Um, I was the DJ in every Tuesday night in uh, the Baggett Inn with the, when they played eight nights with the Blades in support and that. And like, so I saw, saw them in lots of places. I, I mean, do, I saw them in the I'm, weirdest places. I'm just yeah. listening to you now thinking about all the stories Dave Fanning has to tell. Well, I could tell you, yeah. <laughs> I'd say you could. <laughs> now, one of the things we try to do with this is introduce people to uh, music that they might not have heard before. And I know this is one that you say we should hear. This is Out of Control. So they still play that, do they, at the live games? They do. That's one of the reasons, probably, I'd say, from the early days. Yeah, that's one song. Also, they, like, it's a really weird thing to do, to be on national radio and to let a band with the demo tape band come in five nights in a row and let the audience decide which should be the A side and the B side. I'm talking the vinyl days here. And that's what we did. We brought this band in, U2. The only reason was... That they, also, we did sessions. We brought bands in for sessions. And the first band we did was U2. It's not that we knew... Like, I, I didn't see anything that was going to be world-dominating. I just saw a band I liked, you know? I didn't, Wasn't that I a no great idea. thing, though, to... I, I'm, I'm not blowing your trumpet now, but... It was a great opportunity for a new musical act, which doesn't really happen now. You know, a DJ spots something in a band, brings them in to play live over five nights. Yeah. There's a real we, collaboration with the audience. Yeah, and we had a we had a facility then in 2FM to do that for, for over 400 bands over about 20 or 30 years, which was brilliant to do. Yeah. It, really was. it was the first rung on the ladder for many bands. Also, it was a demo tape for them to give to a record company. And in those days, it was all about the deal. Because that thing I mentioned about playing the National Rooms in London, each member of the band got 500 quid off their parents and saying, this is it. We're going over for a couple of games. If it doesn't work, I'm going to get a real job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was, seriously, that That's was it. And they, was, they had already played 30 or 40 gigs in Ireland, you know. Yeah. And Bono's voice, controversy always over Bono's voice. Some people, lo- lo- millions of people absolutely love Oh, at the time Bono's of the Joshua voice. Tree, it was just exceptional. He just mm. grew into something fantastic by then, you know. But even before that, it was great, yeah. Mm. And how does he feel about his own voice on the early recordings? Well, I mean, I don't know if you, I, I, you haven't seen that thing he's done, the, the Surrender uh, stage show, the one-man stage show. The new one? No, yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's fantastic. And he sings about 10 or 13 songs on that or whatever. It's really good what he does. The voice is just brilliant. It really is fantastic. And it was great in the early days too. It was all, it was all gauche and everything was on the sleeve and everything was up there in the front. A lot of people would go, oh God, it's not for me kind of thing, you know. Tell me about your most rock and roll moment with the band. I'm thinking about the time you flew to Miami, wasn't to, to give them oh, the award. Yeah, the, oh God, that was a bit embarrassing, all right, yeah. Well, it wasn't embarrassing, no. It was, it was the Irma Awards here and I had to be filmed giving them the Irma Award because the programme was going to be on three or four days later. So I had to fly out with, they, they didn't have the award ready so Sinead O'Connor had left hers in the dressing room the year before <laughs> so I brought that one out. So I'm handing them over things like Sinead O'Connor, best singer and the, <laughs> to the four of them on a stage and four seconds later they walk out and do the very first Zoo TV thing. Uh, Anton Corbin took a picture of it and it's my 
my favourite picture of me with you too. But the funny thing is, there's, there's video of it and all the rest because somebody put it up online recently. I'd love to get my hands on that. It's extraordinary brilliant. though. I mean, how exciting to oh, do that. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, it was, like, I mean, and Bono was, he actually quoted a line, oddly enough, from my favourite U2 song from the, from the Fly, which was on that Octung Baby album, which is the one they'll be celebrating now in Vegas as well at the end of September. And uh, he just said, look, i got to go, you know, because like, really, he was really hyped up. The four of them, they just walked out behind this curtain. <laughs> Madness. That doesn't do a bit of it. So the longevity then, Dave, does that come from touring and touring and touring and just getting better and better and tighter as a band as they went along? There's no doubt about it. That's what they did. I mean, even when they went to London that time, and I was—I was, I remember talking to Bono once. He said, "We're going to London." I said, oh yeah, God, every band goes to London. Then they break up by Christmas. Yeah, okay, all right, good luck, enjoy it. They were never going to London to go to London. They were going to London to use it as a stepping stone to go to America. And crucially, Paul McGuinness really is the fifth member and did so much about all that. Mm-hmm. They knew what they were doing, and they toured and they toured and they toured. They didn't stop touring. They just kept touring. So and what? He off. he had the vision, or did? Oh no, they all did. Oh no, my so God. They, they all, all had knew that exactly ambition. Exactly what they were doing. Yeah, they really did. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I, you know, no out about it. It was a five piece on that level. But it wasn't until 1985 that it really exploded, right? Well, yeah. I mean, like, you see, in those days as well, you had a chance to grow up. You had a chance to go to album number three without being massively successful. That doesn't happen anymore, I can tell you. You get a record deal and they pay for and, you know, put the money behind tours and all that kind of thing. And it's really... So they got as far as Unforgettable Fire, which is the fourth album. And then they did um, Under a Blood Red Sky, the live album and that. So part two of U2 was to start after that. And in 1985, they did Live Aid and two years later, Joshua Tree. And they really were the biggest band in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A small part of the story of U2 as told to Claire Byrne by Dave Fanning this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Nilo Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. But for me, thank you for listening and good luck.